everything that we have been through has made us who we are today. And if you think back to your past and the adventures and the adversity that have marked your life, those have brought together all the forces that have shaped you to make you and to make me who we are today. And that's why so many times in our lives when we tell stories of of experiences that we've had, we can trace the link from those experiences to the perspective we now have, the things that we now believe, the values that, that are important to us and drive us. You know, this week I was remembering uh, an adventure that I had in the summer between my junior and senior year of college. I spent the majority of that summer on the other side of the world working with a number of people groups who uh, had very small percentages of their population who were followers of Jesus. And this is a picture of me in the, uh, the green polo there, a lot different then than now, braces, glasses. Um, but these were some of the guys that we were, we got to know that we built relationships with. There are four, you know, white guys in the picture. And those are, you know, my American friends that were there with me. And it was in that summer and it was in that time that I had so many formative experiences that shaped me. And one of those formative experiences was my first and greatest encounter with real racism. In that part of the world, uh, people literally would not acknowledge the presence of someone of another race. Remember standing and talking to one gentleman who's actually pictured here and another person walked up of a different race and the person I was talking to turned his back while I spoke to this new person who's of another race. And when he walked away, the person I had been talking to turned his back back to his front and began talking to me in the exact same sentence as if nothing had happened. He so hated that other person of another race that he would not even acknowledge his existence. There are places that we couldn't go based upon who we were with in that particular city because it would have been dangerous and it could have cost them their lives. And so I came back from that summer and saw so many experiences through fresh eyes and with a new perspective. And I had conversations with my friends in this country who did not share my race with a new sense of openness to listen to their experiences. And it was that season and those experiences that changed me. And I think moved me to a greater awareness and a greater understanding that I had been lacking before. That adventure fixed a blind spot in me. And over the next few weeks, as we go through the book of James this summer, my prayer is that we're going to gain that same kind of practical wisdom for life's adventures. We're going to be in the book of James this summer in May, June, July, maybe even part of August, as we go through this book in the Bible that I think is maybe the most practical book in all of the scriptures, filled with incredible wisdom about how we live as followers of Jesus in the midst of challenging, difficult times, in the midst of life's adventures. And what you're going to see as we go on in this series is you're going to think that we picked this book because of what was happening in culture, and that's not true. We, we love to study books of the Bible each summer at Cornerstone, and this summer is James, but by God's providence and by God's wisdom, you're going to find so many places where this book speaks 
speaks to challenges that we're facing today. So as we're starting this series, because I know some of you have never read the book of James before, I want to give you some context about James. And if you're taking notes on our handout from our website, there'll be a place for this. James is written, ironically, by a guy named James. And James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. We'll learn a little bit more about him today, but he's the author. He's the reason we call this book James, because it was written by a guy named James. And it was written to a specific audience. James wrote the book of James, a letter to a group of Jewish Christians who lived in Mesopotamia and Babylonia. Now, James was living down here in Jerusalem. James was the leader of the New Testament church. James actually speaks in Acts chapter 15 that I referenced earlier during my time of prayer for our country. And James was speaking to the Jewish Christians who had been scattered by the persecution the Romans were bringing and who'd ended up in Mesopotamia and Babylonia. And so he speaks to this scattered Jewish church, these Jewish followers of Jesus. Scholars believe that James wrote the book of James in the late 40s AD, which makes it one of the earliest New Testament writings. Jesus was crucified somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. And so this was written within 15 or 17 years of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So very early on in the history of the church, James writes this book. Now, what you need to know because I know you have Google, is that James is a book that was controversial in the very beginning as the church was trying to make sense of what were the things they were going to include in the New Testament portion of the Bible. And there was some controversy around the book of James because of the focus that James had and the things that he wrote about that in some ways were a different focus than other people wrote about. For instance, the Apostle Paul wrote a ton of letters in the New Testament. Paul is actually the, the major author of the New Testament, books like First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. He's written all of those books. And in Paul's writings, he focuses on inner saving faith, whereas James focuses on outward serving faith. Paul focuses on the seed of faith that comes in and transforms a person. James focuses on the fruit of that faith externally. What Paul emphasizes is that works do not equal faith. Works do not save you. He articulates this really well in Galatians. We went through Galatians a couple summers ago here at Cornerstone. But what James says is that faith always leads to works. Faith always leads to external signs. And you say, Scott, if if there's controversy around this book, how can we have confidence that it's in the Bible, that it was inspired by God, then it should be there. Here's, Here's why the early church decided to put James in the Bible. Here's the reason you can have confidence. It was written by the brother of Jesus, who was a pillar of the early church. The apostle Paul describes the pillars of the early church as James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, and John. He was a trusted person within the church. It agreed with other scriptures. What we're going to find all throughout this study in James is that James is constantly referencing other scriptures and validating the things that he is teaching in light of other trusted scriptures. And James's words, they echo the words and the teaching of Jesus. And that's why the early church put James in the New Testament. That's why they believed it was inspired by God because it was written by James, the 
brother of Jesus, who was a pillar of the early church. It agreed with other scriptures, and it echoed the very words of Jesus and his own teaching about how his followers were supposed to live. So today, we're going to take a a chunk, the first part of James we're going to study, and here's the big idea that we're going to see in that text. The transformation is our gift on the other side of an adventure. Transformation is our gift on the other side of an adventure. If you're in the middle of an adventure, if you're in the middle of a season of adversity, the gift that you get on the other side of that is transformation. God changes us as we go through that season, that moment, that experience of adversity, that adventure. So I said today we're going to take the first chunk of the book of James, and that is found in James chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up to the book of James. Now you'll notice in my Bible that my bookmark is pretty far into the Bible. We're talking over 90% into the Bible. Hebrews comes before James, and 1 Peter comes after James. So if you're scrolling in your digital Bible this morning, and you go past Hebrews, make sure you stop right there. James chapter 1. We're going to read the first eight verses of James chapter 1. Now, I know we just told you that we're going to come back together, those of you who are ready to come back together, in this space on June 21st. And what we'll do that day, I want to invite you to start doing, is that as we read each section of James, I want to invite you to stand wherever you are in honor of God's word. And I'm going to read, you can follow along on the screens with James chapter one, beginning in verse one. My friend Patrick's going to keep us going. James chapter one, beginning in verse one says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that through your word today and throughout this summer that you'd speak to us, that you convict our hearts, And that you show us how you want us to live in these days with wisdom and courage. And I pray today selfishly that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, Jesus, would be pleasing to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, as we dig into the first eight verses of James chapter one, we're going to see four reminders for your current adventure. Four things that you need to know as either you head into or in the middle of an adventure. Now, I know many of you are kind of dealing with uh, cabin fever. So you're going out, you're taking a trip, you're going on a road trip, you're getting outside. And so as you go on those adventures, here's four reminders I want you to consider. Four things I want you to remember. And here's the first one. God's grace moves us from lingering doubt to wholehearted commitment. What God's grace does in our lives is that God's grace meets us when we're wrestling with lingering doubts. And God's grace moves us to wholehearted commitment. 
Now that's the first reminder because that is the experience of the writer of James, James himself. James introduces himself in this first verse by saying, I'm James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now many of you, I think, don't think about all of the other ways that James could have introduced himself. Like when you meet someone for the first time, there's many ways you can introduce yourself. You can say, I'm Mary, and then you can put after that whatever you want. You could put your job, you could put your relationships, you could put your accomplishments, you could put your titles. I could tell you, I'm Scott, a pastor, Scott, a writer, Scott, a husband, Scott, a father, Scott, a friend. I could put so many things there. Well, James could have said, James, the brother of Jesus, James, the leader of the early church, James, a pillar in the church. He could have put so many things there. And yet what he does put there is intentional. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he wants you to know him, that he is writing not as someone with power, but as someone who is a servant. And if you don't know the story of James, you don't know the significance of those words. Because we need to always remember this, that no one has always been the person they are today. You Me, none of us have always been the person we are now. All of us have a story. And I showed a picture of myself earlier with glasses. I no longer wear glasses. I no longer wear braces. I no longer wear big, two sizes, too large cargo pants. Thank God. No one has always been the person they are today. And James certainly hasn't because when we meet James in the Bible... He is not a servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. John chapter seven, verse five says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So when we meet James, James is antagonistic and against his brother and doesn't believe the claims of his brother, Jesus. But it isn't just he doesn't believe in him. In Mark chapter three, here's what Mark says. He says, then Jesus went home The crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when Jesus' family heard it, when his family heard about this, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying he is out of his mind. James and his family tried to stage an intervention on Jesus because they didn't believe that Jesus was in his right mind and that what he was teaching didn't make sense. So when we meet James... He is is probably well beyond lingering doubts. He is in disbelief. Now, before you judge James for that, I've got a question for you. And that question is this. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was your Lord and Savior? If you have a brother or a sister, what would it take for you to believe that your sibling was your Lord? That your sibling was your savior. And that was James's experience. He had grown up with Jesus in the same home. And then Jesus begins to teach that he was sent by God. That he is one with God. He begins to perform these miracles. And James goes, I don't believe you. In fact, I think you're crazy. And you go, how did James go from that to writing this book? The same way you and I went from where we were to where we are today. We all had an undeniable, life-changing encounter with the resurrected Jesus. 
Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another word for Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his brother, and then to all the apostles. That's why when we meet James in the book of James, years after he didn't believe in Jesus and they tried to have the kind of intervention with Jesus, James uses the word doulos to introduce himself, which is translated servant in English, which means voluntary slave. He has committed himself to be a voluntary servant and slave of his brother who is his Lord and Savior because he knew his brother died and then his brother was right there having come back from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus convinced James that everything his brother had said before that was true. And so he completely devoted his life he completely committed his life to being a follower of Jesus. It was the grace of God through Jesus that moved James from lingering doubt to total commitment. And if anybody embodies the word of Oscar Wilde, it's James. Oscar Wilde famously said that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. You have a past and you have a future. James had a past and James had a future. And the reason that he had both was not that he was a good person. The reason he had both was the grace of God. And that's why he introduces himself, not with his position, not with his power, but he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ changed my life and I believe in him. And James is gonna invite us to believe in him today. Second reminder for our next adventure is that God has given us the power to choose our attitude during our trials. Through the Holy Spirit, what God does is he gives us the power to choose our attitude when we are going through trials. Now, I know some of you, when I started reading this passage, you said, Scott, we just spent five weeks talking about trials with Noah. Is this more trials? I promise you, the whole book is not about trials. But trials are inevitable and inescapable in our lives. And the Bible speaks to them again and again so that we know that when we choose to follow Jesus, we are not walking a path that will be free from trials. But what James is trying to do is to help these believers who have been scattered because of persecution, who are living in exile because of persecution, to understand how to live amidst their trials. And he's calling them to choose their attitude. In James 1-2, he says, count it all joy. Your translation may say, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Your Bible may say many kinds. So what James is acknowledging here is that life is going to be filled with many trials, various trials. And in that moment, we can count those trials as joy. We can consider them with joy. Now, that is not the normal 
involuntary human reaction to a trial. For most of us, our normal involuntary response to a trial is complaining. It's, it's calling someone and telling someone about how terrible it was. It's posting something on social media about how, how horrible it was what we've been through. And yet what James does is he says, hey, when you meet trials of many kind, consider it. Choose your attitude and choose to consider those various trials with joy. In the 1930s and 1940s, Viktor Frankl went into a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. And as a psychiatrist, he was tasked with working with prisoners in those camps. And he began to teach them and help them to find meaning and purpose and to choose their own attitudes when they were going through the most horrific treatment that any humans had experienced. And in a, a book that he wrote called The Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about what he taught them. And here's what he said. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. When you encounter adversity, when you hit that stimulus of a trial, there is a space between you realizing you are in a trial and you responding to a trial. That's, that response may be a few seconds, a few minutes, or just a snap of your fingers. But in that space, Frankel reminds us of what James says, that we have the power to choose our response. And it is that power that God gives us that is where our growth will come, where we will experience true freedom. And that's why James says, consider it all joy. He doesn't say consider it happiness because happiness is, is circumstantial. Happiness is a result of going through happenings that, that make us filled with happiness. No, joy is bigger than our circumstances. Happiness is a response to our circumstances and joy is bigger than our circumstances. And so when, when James says count it all joy, consider it all joy, he's calling them to a view that is bigger than their circumstances. And that's why what James is doing here is he's, he's calling us to look at our trial through an eternal point of view. What does this trial look like from an eternal point of view? Not just the moment, not just how we feel, not just what our friends think, but from God's perspective who is at work in the midst of that trial, what do you see? From his perspective, if you were to pull yourself out of the moment for his perspective and look at the larger work that God is doing in your life, what does this trial look like from an eternal point of view? And it is from that view that James is writing to a, a people who are in the midst of a trial, trying to help them understand that they have a, a power and that power is the ability to choose their attitude. That's why I think what James is saying is he's saying, I, I'm not joyful for the trials. I'm not joyful after the trials. I'm joyful in the trials. He's not saying, hey, I am just overjoyed that I have to go through hard things. No. He's not saying, I'm going to be joyful when those trials are done and behind me. He's saying, I am joyful 
in the trial. I'm counting it joy when I'm in the adversity. Why? Because I see what God is doing. And what God is doing is bigger than my circumstances. The way God is working is larger than my feelings in the moment. And so I am going to choose to base my attitude on that. Not just what I see in this moment. And not just what I feel in this moment. God has given us the power to choose our attitude. When we're in the midst of trials. When we're in the midst of adversity. Here's a third reminder from James. He says, those who have endured adversity, they actually have an advantage. Now, most of us do not view our adversity, our trials, our difficulties, our challenges as an advantage. But James does. And here's why in verses three to four. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What James is trying to describe is the process that God uses trials to accomplish in our lives. That trials produce steadfastness and that steadfast, when it's finished, leaves us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's why he uses the word advantage. That there is an advantage for those of us who do not run from the trial, who do not try to escape the trial, who don't short circuit the trial. There is an advantage on the other side. I've been using a word in this message, adversity, and I'll make sure that we're clear on the definition of adversity. Adversity is a state or instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. And some of you go, oh, there's a word to describe my life right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's the word adversity. And adversity, according to the scriptures, offers us an advantage on the other side because it gives us the opportunity to see the truth of who we are, what we know, and what we believe. Put another way, adversity is truth serum for your relationship with God, for the state of your own character, for your relationship with other people, Adversity is truth serum. It forces and reveals the truth. And if if you're a teacher, you'll totally understand this. If a student comes to you and says, you know what? I know all the answers. I've I've figured this all out. If they come to you with a kind of hubris and arrogance and says, hey, I know all that. What do you do? You make that student take a test to prove that they know everything they think they know. And it isn't just enough, enough to say, hey, I know all of it or I've accomplished all of it. Okay, prove it pass the test. And that's what James is saying adversity is. He's saying it's like a refiner's fire that you put metal through to purify it and reveal the true character of it. And that's why adversity offers us the advantage because on the other side of it, we can trust in and depend on and, and stand on what we have because we know that it has been through the fire. We know that it has been through a test. We know that the truth of it has been revealed. And that's why James says that the outcome of our trials, the outcome of that steadfastness leaves us mature and complete The the Greek words that we translate mature and complete give us this idea of wholeness, fullness, not lacking anything. So if you've been through a, a trial or adversity and you're on the other side, it doesn't guarantee that you are mature and complete. 
But on the other side of a trial or adversity that you truly surrendered to God in, that you allowed him to work in, it gives God the opportunity to finish what he's been working on you to accomplish and create. And God cannot make you the person he wants you to be apart from trials and adversity because the steadfastness that you develop during that time must finish its work. And in the same way that many of us try to cut corners in projects and rush things, what James is saying is don't rush what God is trying to do. Don't try to escape what God isn't finished with. And the question I have for you today is this, am I looking to escape something God is calling me to endure? If you're in the middle of a trial today, I know it's difficult. It wouldn't be a trial if it wasn't difficult. I know it's hard. You may feel overwhelmed. You may feel exhausted. But the question I have for you is that could that desire to escape be actually working against what God is trying to do? And if instead of trying to escape, what if you asked God, are you calling me to endure this? Because on the other side of this, you will have a gift. You will have an advantage. And not just in your own self and who God is calling and making you to be. Not just in your relationship with God, but trials and adversity can even offer our relationships an advantage. You know, there's been a popular TV show on TV for a long time. At one point, it was the most popular TV show on television. It was running four nights a week. ABC was milking every advertising dollar it could out of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And I have no idea who this host is. The guy I knew who hosted it was Regis Philbin. I remember watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and when somebody would get into the harder questions, like the $128,000 question or the $256,000 question, they would get stuck deciding between the four answers. And if you know this show, you know where I'm going, they would say, Regis, I'm going to call my lifeline. And there'd be a person they could call on the phone and ask the question to, to get help with the answer. And on the show, you had to pick three to five people in advance before you went on the show to be your options to call for your lifeline. Now, I have to believe that the people who were on the show didn't just pick randomly three to five people from their life. Okay, my high school English teacher, my first boss, my neighbor. No, they thought about who are the people I can trust? Who are the people I can depend on? Who do I know will help me when things get hard? And those are your lifelines. And if you're in the middle of adversity and you hit a moment where you need help, who do you call? The people who have already proven themselves in your life through past adversity and through past trials. When you're in adversity and it isn't your first rodeo, you have an advantage because you know who are the people you can trust. I've got a friend and he says, I don't trust my friends until we fought. Until we've gotten a fight, we're not real friends because I don't know what they're going to do. I had a friend in February. We weren't very close. But over the last three months, we have called each other, texted each other, depended on each other. And the friendship that we have now, I can trust in and depend on. Not because things have been easy, but because they've been hard. And I have an advantage because I know I can trust and depend on him because of what we've been through. That's the advantage that we're offered. 
Fourth and final reminder that God is more generous in his assistance than we might expect. God is more generous in his assistance than we might expect, certainly than we would be ourselves. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and all of us lack wisdom in some place in our lives, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Now, I have to tell you that there have been so many times in 2020 that I have got on my literal knees or been face down on the ground begging God for wisdom because I didn't know what to do because I'd never been here before. I felt vulnerable, out of control, and uncertain of what to do. And I called on God for wisdom and he has spoken to me again and again. And I have been impacted throughout my life by the writings of a man named Henry Blackaby who wrote a a book that did really well, had a huge impact in my teen years called Experiencing God. And in Experiencing God, Blackaby lays out four ways the Bible teaches us that God speaks to us. The first way God speaks to us is scripture. It's after all God's written word. God speaks to us through prayer, not only as we talk to him, but as we listen to him. Because prayer is not a one-way monologue. It's a dialogue. Through godly counsel, we go to people that we respect their relationship with God, that maybe have been following Jesus longer than we have, and we turn to them for counsel and wisdom. And then God uses circumstances in our life to speak to us. Now, now these go in this order because you should be filtering your counsel through Scripture. You should be filtering what you see from your circumstances through prayer and through Scripture. But this is the way that God speaks to us in our lives. And we, when we turn to him and ask him for wisdom, these are the places that we should be looking to him to speak to us. And according to James, God wants to speak to us and all we have to do is ask that he wants to speak to us and he is generous. He will give it as the ESV that I read from says, without reproach, your Bible may even say ungrudgingly that when we pray to God, God is not like, oh, that person again, Scott, when are you going to get it? I can't believe I have to give you more wisdom. No, God is ready to give us this wisdom. He is more generous with us than we would be ourselves. And I think sometimes we struggle to go to God in prayer and seeking him because we think God is going to be like other people in our lives or maybe like us ourselves. I had a friend a few years ago and all of a sudden he got rid of his beloved pickup truck. I saw him driving a car at one point. I said, dude, what happened to your truck? You love that truck. He's like, I just got tired of spending every Saturday morning helping my friends move. Every Saturday, I got a phone call. And it wasn't because I was close to them. It's because I had a truck. And as soon as I got rid of the truck, the phone calls stopped. He said, this, 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 this was my text message. He said, I would respond, are there any old TVs or wood dressers? <laughs> if you've moved people, you know the importance of asking that question. But he said, hey, I just, I got tired of people calling me. I got tired of them asking me. And once I got rid of the truck, they stopped calling. They stopped bothering me. That that, that was his opinion. That was his perspective, good or bad. Here's what I want you to know. That is not how God responds to you. 
That is not what God thinks when you call to him and you pour your heart out to him and you seek him and you beseech him for wisdom. No. I love what John Calvin says on this topic. He says, there is nothing like this attitude in God. He is ready to add new blessings to the former ones without any end or limitation. God is not rolling his eyes that you are calling out to him again. He is ready with generosity and no grudge to pour out wisdom to you. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message. He says, ask boldly, believingly, without a second thought. People who, quote, worry their prayers are like wind-whipped waves. Don't think you're going to get anything from the master that way. Adrift at sea, keeping all of your options open. And if we can have just a, a, a time right now for some real talk, I think that's how a lot of us pray. We call God, we pour our hearts out to God, we pray to God, but like we would someone that we're not sure we can count on, we make sure that we have a backup plan. We keep all of our options open. We pray, but we're not totally certain that we're going to get the answer that we want. And so like someone who stands at a fork in a road, we make sure that we have something else to fall back on if God doesn't do what we wanted him to do. Here's what James says. You're going to be in trials. You're going to be in adversity. You're going to go through struggle. But if you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously and without a grudge, who longs to speak to you. So trust that. Don't worry your prayers. Don't doubt Don't keep your options open. Fully trust in him. And when you do that, he will transform you. So that on the other side of the adventure you're in today, you will be a different kind of person. And that's what James is saying is, I am a different kind of person because of what God has brought me through and how he has helped me to live. If you're following along, taking notes, I want to encourage you to write down some next steps today, some things to put into practice to practically apply this message. And here's the first one. I want to encourage you to ask God to reveal at least one purpose of your current trial and then focus on that purpose. So if you're just overwhelmed by the pain or the difficulty or the challenge of your current season in life, ask God to reveal at least one purpose of what you're going through, and then focus on that purpose because that is the catalyst to you considering it all joy, to you countering it all joy. God, what's the purpose of this? Help me to see one purpose in this, and then I'm going to laser focus on that purpose. That's number one. Number two, reach out to one lifeline friend in your life and thank them for going through your recent adventures with you. Who's somebody that is an advantage to you because of how they've walked with you through the trials and the struggles? And do they know that they are a lifeline friend for you? And do they know how grateful you are for them? Sadly, I often hear people give testimonies about how someone was a lifeline friend for them, but the friend can't hear it because the testimony is given at a funeral. Don't wait. Thank them today. Number three, set a daily reminder to ask God for wisdom, even in what seems like a little thing. You might say, I, I don't have anything, Scott. Well, find something. Well, it's, it's little. It's not important. 
It may not seem important to you, but it's important to God because God cares about everything you're going through. So put a reminder on your phone, start time every day. I'm going to pray to God for wisdom for whatever I'm going through and turn to him and seek him. He wants to give you wisdom. And as a way to do that, number four, I want to encourage you to memorize James 1, through 1 verse 5. And here's James 1 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. And I'm always on my phone. Actually, every Sunday morning, I get a reminder of how much I'm on my phone each week. And so we've put together a wallpaper you can download and put on your phone as a background to help you memorize this verse this week. And that can be found at prescottcornerstone.com slash James. We'll be adding a new wallpaper each week for each week's memory verse. You'll find other resources there to other studies you can do on James if you want to dig deeper this summer. But we're praying that this book does an incredible work in your life and guides you into a deeper relationship with God filled with wisdom. Let's pray.